I'm Matt Serdahl. Welcome to Mythic Christ, reawakening mythic imagination in earth, the self, and the divine. Mythic Christ podcast offers an experiential bridge between imagination, archetype, and sacred story to re-mystify the divine image within, to summon spiritual renewal and action in these times. This is Mythic Christ, reawakening mythic imagination in earth, the self, and the divine. Please consider becoming a patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash mythic Christ. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com, slash, Mythic Christ. I will also leave in the show notes uh, for the podcast today other ways that you can get involved or become a part of community through liking our Facebook page, visiting our website, and signing up for our newsletter. The heavens are rehearsing the glory of God. Rehearsing. Day to day pours forth speech. Night reveals knowledge unto night. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. Passage comes from the 19th Psalm. I can still smell the pungent perfume of the desert sage congregating below me rising up from the black depths beneath the canyon rim rock. Their silhouetted arms reach longingly upward toward the heavens. I feel them waiting, silently witnessing the night. The awakened gaze of innumerable stars burn overhead as the face of the moon delicately traces the warm sandstone contours of the canyon rim in a pale light. Alive and in sheer awe, my body stands at the edge of this dark world, vibrating in the stark, illuminating gaze of the moon. A sea of darkness yawns open, revealing some other night calling to me in this thin moment. I hear it with my whole being. I hear it in my cells and bones. A singing. The great unending grief of the earth and the song of the stars calling to each other. Rising together in the night. The fragrance from the bush floor The song of the cicadas are sewn together in this haunting cosmic dirge, 
I listen to these primordial voices as if hearing sound itself for the first time. The sound of innocence in its world-making beauty. Erotic fragrances pour forth in unending praise. The melodic, meditative sounds of these stringed ones, each note revealing a vaster, older and deeper liturgy. A courtship that has long preceded human worship. On desert nights like these, I'm reminded of the words of Stephen Buhner, who says, quote, There is a language in the world much older than our own. Ours is only a reflection of that older language, our take on it, our innovation, end quote. Throughout all the great ages of the world, found perhaps in almost all world mythologies and vestiges embedded in church theology and religious dogma, there is a lighted torch of the great perennial wisdom and mystical traditions. This torch illuminates stories of union, sometimes a great heroic ascent into the sky, emerging into cosmic oneness, stories of return to the beginning, to the primordial lush garden of blissful innocence. Return to the tree of life before the taboo and curse. Hearts, minds, souls, communities drawn to that great cosmic liturgy of love in sexual union, where this problematic self, the origin of suffering, is finally dissolved, where the two merge into one, where all suffering melts away into the vast pleroma. Union is a circle, it's a parabola. Union is the place where the beginning is an end and the end is a beginning. All difference and separation that causes suffering dissolved into this eternal now. Union is like a return to the cosmic womb of life, death and more life. The shape of this story is ascent. The shape of this story is return. The problem, however, is war. What do we do with violence, with this pandemic of gun violence, with this COVID body count that has surpassed the death toll of World War II. The problem is catastrophic climate change and ecological destruction. The problem is the modern myth of evolution doesn't quite seem to hold any water when we listen to the news. The problem is the adolescent hero myth, the idea of total victory of science, or salvation without effort or cost. The problem is our tenacious need to cling to enlightenment and success without any struggle. The problem is our denial of death. 
this idea of ascent without any descent. The problem is we've had over 5,000 years of religion and the problem is what do we do with the dual and oppositional forces of reality that we can't possibly understand. If we were to look around and really ask ourselves, how well has that worked out for us? On this episode of Unitive Christ, the Cosmic Dissolver, we will explore the deep archetypal pattern we all must follow on our journey of psycho-spiritual transformation one that includes both the journey of descent and ascent. We'll consider the paradox or mystery of union, what it means, what it feels like to die into life as the great dissolver of evolution itself. We will also consider a blind spot in contemporary Western spirituality, which has been primarily ascent-based and completely missed the journey of descent. This episode is the beginning of a series, this Unit of Christ series, that will explore the archetypal images, including wisdom, sacred fool, the trickster, and the nature of these archetypal energies to subvert, overthrow, dissolve, merge, coagulate, and unite. More than ever today, we need to consider this unit of Christ as a deep invitation into our own transformation, not just individually, but as a culture. That story I shared took place in southwest Colorado in a place called Sage Canyon, which has become really dear to me. A place of mystery and belonging, a place of community with other friends that have accompanied me that I have accompanied on this journey over the last six to nine years here. And uh, it took place one night while I was camped right on the edge of uh, the canyon Rimrock, uh, probably a couple of hundred feet above the arroyo floor. There was something about that moment where I felt united. I felt that I was privileged to listen in to a story, to a song that had been sung from the very beginning between uh, the world, the earth, and the sky, the heavens, the stars, a... a uh, cosmic song and for just a brief moment it was like melting into present moment of rapture in which I was able to see just for a moment the larger picture and meaning that held my own small insignificant life and I could imagine that over countless millennia all the way back through history and time that humans have longed for this freedom for this freedom from bondage to the limits of the self, of the physical realm, of all of the suffering and death, of fear and confusion, that 
humans have longed for a portal to the stars, even cold and distant, those keepers of ancestral wisdom, the ancient secrets into the mysteries of the cosmos. So you might imagine that behind some of the oldest god images of humanity, behind the primal mother goddess, stands a void that is not to be breached, a holy darkness that was the origin and source of all. The source of light ineffable, a radiance pure and virginal, and that this quest for a cosmic innocence is somehow patterned in us, a primeval dawn, one which holds light and darkness in balance, one that includes and transcends masculine and feminine, yet births both energies into the world of form and time. A world in which everything has its own place, where everything belongs. Most origin myths are stories of the cosmos. In the first century, these Stories were shaped by belief in an intelligence, so a wisdom behind and within the universe itself, a soul within the world itself, the anima mundi, that gave rise to our own human capacities for knowledge, experience, culture, devotion, worship. I've been sort of tracking uh, these four kinds or modalities of consciousness that I've noticed in many of the world myths that sort of receive the shape of this deeper structural pattern in the cosmos. And we see it in ancient Jewish and Greek cosmology and mysticism and philosophy. The first I call logoic, which comes from the word logos or word. It's sort of this organizing intelligence of the divine in the creative realm that differentiates the chaotic forces into meaningful being, order. The second I call agapic from the Greek word agape, which is sort of a, a unconditional love a non-attached loving kindness the idea that there's this underlying sea or ocean of loving kindness that permeates the universe, that dissolves those opposites in matter, energy, and spirit into a unitive consciousness of pure being. This is what, in the Christ tradition, we would call communion, actually. The third kind of consciousness I call somatic, from the Greek word soma or body, which is the memory, this memory that is patterned in our bodies, in all bodies, an animate, wild energy that is erotic. It moves through form, sort of like a morphic field of memory that contributes to the ritual intelligence that we see in animals, in minerals, as the case of crystal formation, maybe, and even the plant world, and that we humans share this somatic consciousness with the animals and plants and minerals. Finally, 
what I call mythic consciousness, which we explore a lot in this podcast, which emerges primarily from the imaginal realm, the archetypal and instinctual layer of the world itself. Mythic consciousness is sort of like this realm of deep purpose, interiority, and selfhood, what the Greeks called telos, the purpose or destiny of the self, of created beings, and their own ecosystems. I want to read a passage from an apocryphal text called Wisdom, and this is from chapter 7. It's attributed to the wisdom of Solomon. And chapter 7 begins like this. For it is he who gave me unerring knowledge of what exists, to know the deep structure of the world and the animate elements, the beginning and end and middle of times, the alternations of the solstices and the changes of the seasons, the cycles of the year and the constellations of the stars, the natures of animals and the instincts of wild animals, the powers of spirits and the thoughts of human beings, the varieties of plants and the virtues of roots. I learned both what is secret and what is manifest, for wisdom, the fashioner of all things, taught me. There is in her a spirit that is intelligent, holy, unique, manifold, subtle, mobile, clear, unpolluted, distinct, invulnerable, loving the good, keen, irresistible, beneficent, humane, steadfast, sure, free from anxiety, all-powerful, all-seeing, and penetrating through all spirits that are sentient, pure, and altogether subtle. For wisdom is more mobile than any motion. Because of her pureness, she pervades and penetrates all things. For she is a breath of the one power and a pure emanation of the glory of El Shaddai. Therefore, nothing defiled gains entrance into her, for she is a reflection of eternal light, a spotless mirror of the working of God in an image of his goodness. Although she is but one, she can do all things, and while remaining in herself, she renews all things. In every generation, she passes into holy souls and makes them friends of God and prophets. For God loves nothing so much as the person who lives with wisdom. She is more resplendent than the sun and excels every constellation of the stars. Compared with the light, she is found to be superior, for it is succeeded by the night. But against wisdom, evil does not prevail. So we're going to explore unit of Christ as a dynamic process of unifying the opposites so that an integration on a higher level of consciousness can occur. The basic idea is that everything that exists has its opposite, every force and opposing force. The brighter the light, the darker the shadow it casts. 
and that the universe and the psyche by nature tend toward wholeness. We see this in the Christ tradition and the Pascal mystery, the mystery of communion itself. In a sense, the bread of life is both the bread that feeds the cosmos and the bread that is broken and dismembered. The cup is both the wine of gladness and life and the cup of suffering and death. So we're going to begin this unit of Christ exploration with the archetype of wisdom. And just to say for a moment here, my framework is a synthesis of Jungian thought, the perennial wisdom tradition, and an earth-based mysticism. But it goes further still into the mysteries, which we won't cover here. But in terms of uh, Jungian thought, depth psychology offers a scientific model for understanding thousands of years of the wisdom tradition of the mystics. David Rico, in his book, When Mary Becomes Cosmic, feels that the first depth psychologists were actually the mystics. Carl Jung reinforces this idea. He studied 13th century German mystic and teacher Meister Eckhart. And Jung believed that he had gone deeper than the archetypal level into the great mystery of God. Passage from Colossians chapter 2 says this The knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ Himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge to create the conditions for a real disillusion in our lives, a real dissolution of ego consciousness, a rupture must occur in the veil between worlds. We must confront this tension of opposites, this two-faced wisdom of the unit of Christ. Wisdom. Wisdom holds the capacity for paradox, and it is often symbolized in this, it's called conjunction of opposites, this marriage. Before we explore further this wisdom pattern hidden in the cosmos and exemplified in the archetypal Christ, we also have to consider the feminine and masculine pairs of opposites. That there's a dark and light aspect for each archetype that in order for there to be an ascent, there must also be a descent. And as archetypes, each image holds this creative tension and this destructive potentiality. Each image is a birth and a death. Therefore, they speak to the evolutionary forces of the universe itself. They speak to the uh, nature of collapse at one level of organization even biological organization, that a collapse is necessary to precipitate a reorganization, a rebirth on a higher level of consciousness. 
And we see this all throughout the patterns and rhythms of the natural world. Richard Rohr calls this the wisdom pattern and defines it as really these three phases of orientation, disorientation, and reorientation, which I really like. So both Christ and Mary appear in the Gospels and uh, history as wisdom figures. We can understand them as historical persons who are the object of faith, We can also understand them as objects of personal devotion, which is kind of the emotional affective layer. And then thirdly, we can understand them as universal archetypes, which is a bit more of what I'm focused on here. But in fact, they are all three at once. And even though I'm mostly concerned with the latter, it's important to hold that truth that they're all relevant. The Christ and The Mary of Faith are archetypal energies, they're spiritual realities that endure in the deeper structure of the universe itself. And as archetypes, they also predate Christianity. Theologically, in the Gospel of John, we learn about the pre-existent Logos and Sophia. That's what the pre-existent is getting at. The Logos would be the masculine ordering principle And the feminine visionary consciousness would be Sophia, that reality behind the dreaming of the universe. David Rico says, quote, In the Jungian perspective, Mary as an archetype can be viewed as the most recent personification of the great goddess, with names like Demeter, Tara, Isis, Astarte, Inanna, Sibyl, Kali, and others. In the archetypal view, therefore, the accent is not on Mary as a person, but as a mysterious presence, both in the world and as a living component of the human psyche, end quote. I love that definition because it unfolds our understanding of different layers in which we approach faith, that we approach the spiritual life. And it's really, really important for us today to view Mary archetypally as a holder of the archetype of the divine feminine, which is uh, the great mother, an ancient expression of the wholeness of God. And it's also equally important to note that each archetypal image itself holds a dark side, that this dark side is not evil or bad, that it's hidden, it's enshadowed and darkened, And it's precisely in that unknown, mysterious darkness that fertile potential arises for transformation. And so to speak in Jungian terms, Christ and Mary represents necessary opposites in a certain sense, that they're like two halves of the self, capital S self. They're two halves of the cosmos. It expresses this kind of Eastern concept of yin and yang, so that the God image represents wholeness and does not become one-sided and therefore destructive. I'm a big fan of author and mystic Cynthia Bergeau. Uh, She's absolutely incredible. 
And I'd highly recommend um, her book, Wisdom Jesus, where she explores the paradigm of Jesus as a wisdom teacher. Jesus who, quote, clearly emerges out of and works within an ancient tradition called wisdom, sometimes known as Sophia Perennis, which is, in fact, at the headwaters of all the great religious traditions of the world today, end quote. Cynthia's work is uh, deep, insightful, and it's also accessible. Yeah, she's an erudite mystic, you might say, with an incredible facility with language. And I don't know, she strikes me as a, a true seeker. And I guess I understand her contribution to what I call the unit of Christ archetype to be the experience of a living field of what she calls, quote, recognition energy, end quote, constellated in Jesus' own presence and life, which is really a fascinating concept, and I think she's really on to something. And I would even suggest that this recognition energy is evidence of what a Jungian might call a wisdom archetype that has become activated. That once these archetypes are activated, they create these morphogenic fields, these fields or patterns of behavior in this kind of subtle realm that actually affects events that can constellate new patterns of relationship and meaning, what Carl Jung called synchronicity. And Cynthia says, quote, the Gospels are built on it, end quote. Gospels are built on it, and so was the early church, as the powerful liberation energy of the Christ event spills over and travels forward, moving from recognition to recognition, end quote. So this is quite a bit different than uh, a guru or a gifted spiritual teacher who emanates charisma or is, you know, attractive in their teaching style. What she's referring to is what so many in diverse spiritual traditions have recognized also in the person of Jesus, this mysterious power at work in him, through him, a deep experience of liberation, of awakening. And sensing something breaking through this veil of perception, we identify in a certain way with these two disciples in the first chapter of John who say, Rabbi, where do you dwell? Where do you dwell? To which he says, come and see. True seeing and initiatory knowledge represent these two great energy fields awakened by the feminine wisdom archetype. The Nag Hammadi Codex that was discovered in the early to mid 20th century Egypt was a treasure trove of illumination into this Eastern dimension of the unit of Christ that the historical Jesus embodied. Jesus' own lineage would have come from uh, oral streams that preceded the Syrian-speaking branch of Christianity uh, before the tradition ossified into more of an orthodox-centered Byzantine base. And Jesus emerged out of the Aramaic waters of a Semitic linguistic and cultural stream as well, 
the fomenting messianism of the first century was joined by this stream of living water from the desert, this Essene community, who were a mystical Jewish sect encamped at Qumran. The, these uh, folks who are awaiting the teacher of righteousness. So for the first four formative centuries of the Christ tradition, Christians communed with their living master, the Ihidaya in Aramaic, the unified one, the single one, who was present in their hearts, who dwelt among and within them psychically and somatically, often through ritual, the sacraments, the breaking of bread. This practice of the ritual meal was in fact called anamnesis, which is the opposite of amnesia. It's a living remembrance. It's a reenactment of the reality that it points to. The early church fathers, Cynthia Bergeau says, quote, used to speak of a pathway of perception they called epinoia, which meant knowing through intuition and direct revelation, not through the linear and didactic dianoia of logic and doctrine and dogma, end quote. Pathway of perception, epinoia. So, sociological Christianity focuses on the path, the way. It's all about cultivating integral wisdom that leads to superabundant life, rather than all those atonement soteriologies developed by the church that were really focused on sin management or crowd control in the empire. This is really important. Bourgeau points out that sociological approach may feel strange to us who didn't grow up with this kind of church or Jesus. But she points out, actually, that our experience is only one facet of Christianity. The three others are rooted in unitive wisdom. Unitive wisdom. It is actually, quote, the West that holds the variant position, end quote. So here is a translation from the Gospel of Thomas. If you are searching, you must not stop until you find. When you find, however, you will become troubled. Your bewilderment will give way to wonder. In wonder you will reign over all things. Your sovereignty will be your rest. Quite a translation, huh? <laughs> Sophia and Gnosis are synonyms, implying this, quote, integral participational knowledge carried not in one's head, but in one's entire being, end quote. Sophia and Gnosis share this root with a Latin verb, sapienta, which means to taste, to discern, the personification of wisdom, or Sophia in Hellenistic philosophy, Platonism, Gnosticism, and Christianity, is the archetypal divine feminine. Mary. 
personified as Holy Wisdom, Aya Sophia. This divine feminine runs long, old, deep, and wide. This feminine counterpart is held in the Jesus of history and the Christ archetype. It's traveled long the shores of Galilee. It's woven and meandered the Silk Road, sung on the tongue of Galilean oral folklore and magic traditions. The Silk Road went right through Capernaum. Capernaum was a cosmopolitan center of exchange, trade, commerce that connected the Mediterranean with Central Asia and even China. See, Jesus was not operating in a cultural vacuum. Cynthia Bergeau states, quote, his teachings show clear areas of overlap with the great stream of Sophia Perennis flowing through other spiritual traditions, particularly Buddhism and Persian light mysticism, end quote. So Bourgeau joins the illustrious lineage of Teilhard de Chardin, St. Teresa of Avila, Ilya Delio, Gurdjieff, I would even say Adyashanti, Bede Griffiths, and one of my favorites, Paramhansa Yogananda. Even Gandhi charted the esoteric territory of unitive consciousness. Like many teachers in the Christian mystical and Eastern traditions, Bourgeau is also coming from a long line of theologians within the cosmic Christ paradigm, influenced by the, some of the colonialist assumptions, especially what's called the great chain of being. And the great chain of being goes a little bit like this. The path of inner transformation that the wisdom way brings is progressively from our animal instincts and egocentricity into love and compassion. Sound familiar? It sounds pretty great, actually. In fact, listen to this Logion from the Gospel of Thomas. It's Logion 7. Blessed is the lion whom the man devours, for that lion will become a man. But cursed is the man whom the lion devours, for that man shall become lion. Kind of a strange teaching. According to the hierarchical schematic of this great chain of being, as we evolve toward the divine fullness, we also integrate the consciousness gained at, quote, lower levels of being, end quote, carrying it forward into these, quote, higher levels, end quote. Makes sense. This hierarchy is basic to the wisdom schematic of many religions today. So the question is, is this innocuous? Is there something else happening here? And what's missing 
What might we discover that's absolutely integral for us today? Well, Bourgeois speaks of taming and domesticating, using as an example a dialogue between the fox and the boy and the little prince. She says, uh, taming means to form bonds, to become responsible for that which is tamed, and that which is tamed depends on the one who tamed it. Quote, that's the ballpark this beatitude is working in, end quote, says Bergeau on the third beatitude in Matthew chapter 5, which says, Blessed are the ones who have become spiritually domesticated, the ones who have tamed the wild animal energy within them, the passions and compulsions of our lower nature, end quote. This is how she understands devouring the lion. She goes on to nuance what she means, saying that we don't destroy, dissolve, or repress our lower nature. Rather, we, quote, integrate the energy of the animal intelligence so that the lion gets to become man. So the process of integral consciousness is to make the two become one. And this one is a third thing, it is an emergent order and therefore higher." End quote. I offer this illustration from Bourgeau, whom I said before I admire greatly, to consider the essential framework of unitive consciousness and integral theory inherited by the cosmic Christ or the wisdom tradition. To consider this framework that undergirds almost all Western spiritual discourse, which is itself both masculine and hierarchical, and it's replete with several assumptions that are the inherited baggage of uh, our male-dominated spiritual traditions. So hang with me here for a second. The first assumption is that life is a hierarchy of being with humans at the top, or maybe angels or deities at the top but humans at the top of the food chain, essentially. That's the first assumption. The second assumption is that the instincts, emotions, and the body are part of the, quote, lower or animal nature and must be tamed or spiritually domesticated by the higher nature. The third assumption is a whole male-dominated tradition that links this lower nature to, quote, passions and compulsions, end quote. So I, I want to invite you to consider just the possibility that it is not the animal nature that is compulsive, but it is what has been repressed that becomes compulsive, that becomes sick. So... This is a really important problem or tension or conflict in contemporary Western spirituality, which is the denigration of the animal nature, of the instincts and the emotions and the body. That just like in colonialist empires that sought to evangelize and subjugate indigenous peoples in order to civilize them, to make them become human, to make them become white European Christians. That this 
same set of assumptions is operative in the great chain of being so stated. So I will footnote this as a view of spirituality, a view of the God image that is anything but animist or indigenous in its perspective. So we can imagine, just for a moment, the possibility of a culturally conditioned understanding of unitive consciousness, that it might actually disenchant and diminish the animate realm of nature and our place in it, that if it remains one-sided, will denigrate the body and the emotions as lower nature, that it also has the potential of uprooting humans from a living universe and placing some humans at the top of the food chain, championing the domestication or suppression of the body and instincts. And so it's not too far a leap to imagine a possible projection of these false assumptions of the great chain of being. For all its virtues during its time, this projection from civilizing cultures onto the subjugated cultures, the indigenous peoples that these dominant societies once forcibly removed or assimilated in order to expand their territory and power. Because we want to tame that which we fear. Over the course of thousands of years, we progressively did it with nature. We did it with the soul, the deep imagination. We do it today still with anyone who is different than us, who believes differently, who looks differently. So hopefully it's not too far a stretch to wonder if this myth of the great chain of being, in the pejorative sense, if the dark side of the great chain of being, latent in the unconscious, if it might leak through the cracks of our lives and civilization, if the great chain of being might lurk behind our need to domesticate the other, other bodies, even by force, by violence. But if wisdom is facing the dark as well as the light, if this wisdom way confronts the opposites that I don't accept or even want to name, if wisdom at its heart is integrating the opposites, even the dark side that I most fear, then that's a unit of Christ worth exploring. If this ascent mysticism remains one-sided, its shadowy counterpart will grow equally in strength and become destructive, unconscious power. If our spirituality is all light and love, you can bet that its opposite foments in the darkness. Jesus is driven by the spirit out into the wilderness to confront the shadow, which is the turning point not only in his self-understanding but in the deeps of 
the human heart and soul itself, perhaps, in history. If you like what you heard today, please consider becoming a patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash mythic Christ. That's patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash mythic Christ. Patronage levels start for as low as $6 a month, and patrons get a variety of benefits that are listed on the site, including early access to new podcasts, downloadable guided practices for deepening your own journey, complimentary mentoring and DreamWork sessions, early notification of courses, programs, discounts, and more. Thank you for supporting Mythic Christ. This episode references several books, podcasts, and articles, including Stephen Buhner, Plant Intelligence in the Imaginal Realm, Cynthia Bergeau, Wisdom Jesus, Transforming Heart and Mind, A New Perspective on Christ and His Message, Cynthia Bergeau, Eye of the Heart, A Spiritual Journey into the Imaginal Realm, Richard Rohr, The Wisdom Pattern, Order, Disorder, Reorder. David Richo, When Mary Becomes Cosmic, A Union and Mystical Path to the Divine Feminine. The Apocryphal Text, The Wisdom of Solomon. The Gospel of Thomas, and of course, the Bible. Special musical credit for this episode goes to Two Hawks in his powerful album Sends a Voice, also to Nils Aslek Velke Apaa, Johan Anders Baer, Essa Kutalainen, Seppo Pakunainen, and they're offering the voice of the Sami through their album Winter Games. Hope you enjoyed today's episode, and until next time, may you be open to the presence of mystery, the unfolding of the great dream that has dreamt you, determined to live the one line of poetry that is yours to live. Amen and awen. May it be so. (laughs) 